been away for some time as we were looking together at the account of Abigail, and tonight we are returning to Romans chapter 7 and the next paragraph in our verse-by-verse study of this book. Let's look together at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said... You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let me begin with this question. What do you like to sing about? Think about your favorite songs. What are they about? Usually it is those things we hold in the highest regard, those things that thrill our souls, those things that we most long for. Those are the kinds of things we tend to sing about. Recently, while we were riding down the road, we had the radio on, and Jonathan asked, why are all the songs on the radio always about love? Jonathan had noticed that practically every song that had been played while we were driving was about some guy getting together with some girl or about them breaking up or about the drama of their relationship. Why are so many of the songs on the radio about romantic love? Is it not because, <clears throat> is it not because romantic love is considered about as good as it gets in this world? That is, for those who do not know God, the greatest joy in this world is is romance found with another human being. In their minds, that's the highest thing to sing about. Well, Paul has just been teaching us in verses 1 through 6 that through our union to Christ, we have now died to the law. Christ's death on the cross means that the law no longer has any authority over Christ. And because we died with Christ and are connected to Christ, the law no longer has authority over us. That is, the law no longer has the power to condemn us for our sins. We are free from the law's condemnation and we now belong to Jesus Christ. Well, when we look back over Christian history, we find that this is a theme which many Christians have loved to sing about. 
In our day, people think very little about the law of God. They think very little about the fact that the law condemns them. And being forgiven of their sins, being freed from the law's condemnation through Jesus, means little to even most Christians in our day. But for Christians in centuries past, this was glorious, wonderful news. They held the law of God in high regard, and they knew that having their sins forgiven, as Merle preached about this morning, was, this was an incredible gift. And so they sang about it. Um, in our psalm book, we have, Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. Why should we praise the Savior's name? He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with His blood. And He has brought us nigh to God. Or perhaps you've heard the old hymn, Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, but Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Or how about this hymn from William Cooper? How long beneath the law I lay, in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. To see the law by Christ fulfilled. To hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. And so for Christians of old and for us, this news that we are dead to the law, free from the law, no longer under the condemnation of the law, this should be exciting to us. We need not carry the burden of trying to earn God's favor. We are freely forgiven in Jesus Christ. Now, here is the question that follows. Does this mean we should hate the law? If we are thrilled to be out from under the condemning power, does that mean we now throw the law away as some filthy rag that we want to avoid? Is the law itself something wicked, something for us to refrain from at all costs? Well, you see the answer to Paul's, you see Paul's answer to that question in verse 7. Verse 7 says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. In other words, Paul wants us to understand that we are not to view the law of God as though it were evil. Yes, we once belonged to the law. And yes, the law was our husband. And we were the wife under its authority. And yes, the law was given the power to condemn us. And yes, that meant big trouble for us. But back in those days before we were saved, the trouble was never with the law. The trouble was with us. The reason we needed to be set free from the law is not because the law was wicked, but because we were wicked. The law is good. Don't treat the law as a negative thing. It is a positive thing. And of course, we should already know that. 
Because just as Christians have for centuries been singing songs of celebration about being free from the law's condemnation, Christians have also been singing for centuries songs that celebrate the law of God and how wonderful it is and what a gift it is. I mean, the Bible itself contains psalm after psalm celebrating the goodness of the law and how helpful it is in the life of a child of God. One of the psalms that we sing is Psalm 119, 97 through 104. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my study all the day. It makes me wiser than my foes. Its precepts with me stay. More than my teachers or the old, thy servant understands. Thy testimonies I consult and I follow thy commands. I stay my feet from evil ways that I thy word observe. I have been taught by thee, and from thy judgment shall now swerve. Listen to this. How sweet in taste thy promises, than honey far more sweet thy precepts understanding give, and I therefore hate deceit. So yes, we ought to sing and celebrate and rejoice in the truth. We are free from the law's condemnation that ought to set our feet to dancing, but we also ought to rejoice and celebrate that God has given us the law as a precious gift. If you want to see Paul's main point in this paragraph, he writes it in the last verse, verse 12. So look at verse 12 and see the main point. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul wants us to get this. The law is good. Now, there are two questions we should ask from verse 12 to make sure that we're understanding Paul's main point correctly. Two questions for verse 12. Question number one is this. What is the difference between the law and the commandment? Right? Because you see in verse 12, he says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what's the difference between the law and the commandment? Well, Paul seems to be pointing us to both the law as a whole, as well as to each specific commandment within God's law. As we'll see in a minute, Paul has one specific commandment in mind, namely the commandment not to covet. But he speaks here of the law referring to the entire moral law of God, the summary of which we have in the Ten Commandments. And the word commandment refers to any particular precept within that law. In other words, what Paul says here applies both to the law of God as a whole and to each and every commandment within that law. So whether you're looking at the big picture or whether you're looking at any particular law of God, you can say, it is holy, it is good. It is righteous. That's important. And it's important because we might be inclined to say, I love God's law. While there is a particular commandment that we don't particularly care for. Could that be true of us? That in the big picture, in general, we would say, yes, I love God's law. But then we see a commandment that seems to go against our inclinations. Do we still love God's law? Do we still say, this is good, this is righteous, this is holy? What if it means hardship and sacrifice? 
What if this commandment runs contrary to everything I'm feeling and thinking? What if this commandment seems harsh to me? What if this commandment seems old-fashioned to me? Paul was saying that the law of God and every commandment within it is good and is to be received as a gift and obeyed. Is there a commandment of God that perhaps you have been refusing to obey? Is there a command of God that you have been neglecting because for some reason in your mind or heart you have not yet been able to see how it is good, how it is wise, how it is reasonable? Dear friend, if there's any commandment of God that your heart has disdain for, repent of that. Repent of that. Know that God knows what He's doing. Trust Him and submit to that law. This leads us to the other question we should ask of verse 12, which is this. What is the difference between those three adjectives? You see those three adjectives, right? Paul could have just said, the command is holy, and left it there. But he he didn't. He says, the law is holy. And he says, oh, and it's also righteous. Oh, and it's also good. Now, part of this seems to be that Paul is just stressing the point, right? It was worth saying once, hey, let's say it three times. Let's emphasize this. Let's make sure you really understand what I'm saying. The law and each commandment in it, it is really good. So I'm going to use three adjectives to pile on top of one another to stress that. But there is a little difference between each of these words that he uses. The word holy refers to something set apart by God, which is pure and reflects him. The law of God are those commands specifically chosen by God to be given to us, to teach us about His character, to guide us into being like Him. We are called to be holy as He is holy, and we learn how to be holy as He is holy through holy law, through holy commandments, specially chosen, set-apart commandments given by God to us for our good. We become holy by obeying His law. God's commands are not rules that He just came up with on a whim. Each and every precept we find in the Bible was designed by God to teach us about Himself. And since every commandment reflects God in whom there is no darkness at all, we must understand that there is no darkness in them. God's commands are completely Pure. Every commandment of God is free from darkness. They are a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. God's commandments are the way of light, the way of life. The word righteous is a legal term. It has to do with justice. With God as the supreme standard, there is no commandment of God that is unjust. There is no commandment of God that is unfair. Each and every one is righteous. Friends, we live in a day in which many, many people would disagree with that. They take some command of God or another and they say, that command is unfair. That command is unjust. Wives, submit to your husbands. They would say, unjust. Or what about in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul teaches Christians not to sue other Christians in secular courts? 
Can't you just hear some Christian saying, wait a minute, that's unfair. That person wronged me. I need to have made right what what was done to me. That's unfair. Now, of course, that's overlooking that God did set down a way for those things to be dealt with in the local church in 1 Corinthians 6. But that person is missing the truth that every commandment of God is righteous. You cannot charge any commandment of God with being unjust, unfair. God knows what He's doing. And then there's the word good. And when Paul uses this word good, he seems to be saying that the law of God brings real positive effects to our lives. That is, it isn't just that God's commands are morally good in an abstract sense, but when we obey God's commands, real good comes to us. Genuine help, genuine blessing comes to those who obey God's law. God knows what is best for us. Every one of His commandments is for our ultimate eternal happiness. God does not give us rules because He's a spoil sport. God gives us rules to keep us on the road that will bring us to the greatest possible joy imaginable. God is not seeking to ruin our fun. He's seeking to bring us to the place where our highest pleasures will be found, namely in His presence forever. God's commands teach us to stop settling for the mud puddle when we could be enjoying the ocean. And so Paul's point is that the law of God is good and we should view it in a positive way. Just let me ask you, you know your heart, I hope you do. Is this how you view the commands of God? Do you love the law? Now Paul gets to verse 12 by explaining that it is through the law that we come to know our sin. The law itself is not sin. Sin's in us. But it's through the law that we come to see our own sin. So look at verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So Paul is is speaking here about the second use of the law. Remember, Christians have, have categorized for centuries these three great uses of God's law. The first great use is the civil use, in which God's law curbs wickedness in a nation. Um, It's not by accident that the laws of the nations of this world often reflect the moral law of God. Even our own constitution and the laws of our land have some reflection of the Ten Commandments in them. In fact, most nations in the history of the world have had laws against theft, against murder, against certain forms of sexual immorality, against perjury, reflections of God's law. And through that, human behavior is curbed from being as wicked as it could be. The second great use of the law, and this is the one that Paul is addressing here, is the, what's sometimes been called the pedagogical use. Basically, the law as a teacher. The law as a teacher. 
The law helps us to see our own sinfulness and our need for salvation. This is why we must have law before we have gospel. The law teaches us our need for Jesus. The the law teaches us our need for salvation. The gospel teaches us how to have salvation. You see the difference? The law shows us the problem. The gospel brings us the cure. Christ crucified means nothing to a person who hasn't come to grips with his own guiltiness before Almighty God. And so the first great use of the law is that civil use. The second great use of the law is that it's a teacher that brings us to Christ. The third great use of the law is what's called the normative use. That is, this is the law becoming the norm of how Christians are to live. Having been set free from the law's condemnation, having been saved by Jesus Christ, the law now becomes a guide to us in how to live a life that will be useful to God. A life that will bring assurance to our own soul. A life that will be a blessing to those around us. Now, he's talking about the second use here, the teaching use, the pedagogical use that leads us to Christ. How does Paul explain this? Well, First, Paul says that if it had not been for the law, he would not have known sin. That is, the sinful nature that was within his own heart would have had no way to show itself in a way that Paul would have recognized it apart from the law. What is sin? Sin is, by definition, the breaking of a law. So if you have a law, if you, I'm sorry, if you do not have a law, how can your sinful nature show itself, right? You must have a heart that, I'm sorry, you may have a heart that hates God. You may have a heart that wants to oppose God, but until God actually tells you something for you to disobey, you don't get to see that rebellion against God expressed. And thus, it is only when God gives law that our sinful nature is able to seize on that command of God and rebel against it and show to yourself that you have a heart that does not love God. So Paul uses the example of coveting. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So, so take the example of a child, right? A child by nature covets, right? Little Johnny has an Iron Man action figure. Little Billy sees it and immediately wants it for himself, right? That's, that's coveting. And little Billy not only covets, but he, he quickly tries to grab the action figure away. There's theft in his heart, right? But let's stick with coveting. Little Billy is coveting, but he doesn't yet know what he is doing. He doesn't yet know that it's a sin. But then his, his mother takes him aside and says, Billy, I see how you're looking at Johnny's action figures. You, you need to be content with what you have. Desiring for yourself somebody else's property, that's, that's ugly. God says not to do that. Now, if little Billy understands those words, he now knows that coveting is a sin that God says not to do it. He now knows what it is. He knows how to recognize it in himself. Now let me ask you the question. Is Billy going to stop coveting? Well, those of you who are parents with little children, do you tell them once and they immediately change forever? <laughs> no, right? The answer for little Billy, like every one of us, is no. When we learn that God says something is wrong, 
We ought to turn from it immediately. We ought to hate that action. But instead, what do we do? We commit the same sin again and again and again. Our sinful natures show themselves. The law now becomes a mirror in which our ugliness is exposed. In fact, what's more, our natural human hearts are so wicked that we actually find a perverse joy in doing something simply because we know we shouldn't do it. The law not only exposes our sinful nature, the law actually arouses sin within us. The law, when we hear a commandment of God, our wicked hearts say, ooh, let me do that sin, just because we love sin. So look back at verse 5, and you'll see Paul talk about this. Verse 5. Oh, I'm sorry. Here Paul says it this way. Verse Seven. He did talk about it in verse 5, but we're going to look at verse 7. But sin seizing an op- verse eight, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Right? So we have this picture of sin within our souls. Sin just looking for an opportunity to rebel against God. And as soon as the commandment not to covet comes, Our sinful heart sees that sin as an opportunity to rebel and to rebel and to rebel some more. And so Paul says, when he he heard the law, when the law came to him, you shall not covet. Not only did he start coveting, he had always been coveting, but not only did he see himself coveting, but his own heart produced all kinds of covetousness. Sin led him into various forms of covetousness. His sinful heart went all out in this endeavor. His sinful nature was creative and vigorous in its attempt to do the opposite of what God required. We're going to talk more about this next week, but it seems that Paul is giving us something of a personal testimony here. We are getting a glimpse at how it was that God brought Paul to salvation. Remember, when Christ appeared to Paul on the Damascus road, Jesus said to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And this might imply that before that moment when Christ appeared to Paul on the Damascus road, there had already been work going on in Paul's heart. There had already been conviction which Paul was resisting. And what Jesus is saying there is, you are futile in your resistance. I will have you. Your heart will belong to me. We know that Paul witnessed the stoning of Stephen and heard Stephen's speech. Maybe God used that to begin stirring something up in Paul's soul. Paul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were all about outward external obedience to the law. So Paul was a man who outwardly would not have stolen things. He would not have killed people. He would not have committed adultery. He wouldn't have told lies. And in one sense... Those were easy commands for a Pharisee to keep. The problem was that the Pharisees didn't realize that the law is spiritual. It has to do with your soul, with your spirit. It isn't just about outward obedience. It's about what's happening in your heart. And I think that might be why Paul was particularly struck by the 10th commandment. Unlike the other commandments of the second table of the law, You shall not covet deal specifically with the inner man. You do not covet outwardly, at least not mainly. Coveting is something that you do in your heart. And so Paul, as a Pharisee, may have been keeping the other commandments in an external way, 
But as he tried to keep the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, he found that there was something in his heart rebelling against God. Paul found that he was not only coveting, but his soul seemed to be given over to do it. He was doing it in all sorts of ways. We don't know what those were. Maybe he was coveting a seat for the Sanhedrin. Maybe he was coveting riches or coveting power. Maybe he was secretly coveting the Gentiles and their lawless way of life. But whatever it was, and Paul mentions that it was all kinds of covetousness in his heart, it helped him to see that deep down he was not truly a clean person, the way everybody else in society probably thought he was. Christ told the Pharisees that they were like whitewashed tombs. They were all clean on the outside, but there was death inside. Paul, through the law, had the death within him exposed. The law prepared him for the gospel. The law prepared him for his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to dig into this more next week. Let me close with two implications just from these two verses and what we've seen. Implication number one, be thankful for the law of God. Praise God for the law through which you were brought to salvation. I've quoted this before. I'll do it again. Pilgrim's Progress. If you know the book Pilgrim's Progress, we have the main character, Christian, and we have his friend, Faithful. And Christian and Faithful are talking about a man that they have met, a man whose name was Law. And Christian and Faithful are talking about how this man, Law, influenced them. And Christian says, It was he who did bind my heavy burden upon me. And Faithful responds, Eh, had it not been for him, we had both of us stayed in the city of destruction. Christian says, Then he did us a favor. Faithful goes on to say, Eh, albeit he did it none too gently. Christian responds, well, at least he played the part of a schoolmaster and showed us our need. It was he who drove us to the cross. That's the second use of the law. That's what Paul is teaching here. That the law, when it comes upon us by the Spirit of God and we feel that conviction of sin and we see the law is good and I am not, it ought to drive us to the cross. And if that's happened for us, do you see the role that the law played in your conversion? And is that not reason enough for you to be grateful to God for the law? Is that not reason enough for you to say to God, Oh God, thank you for the law. Thank you for how you used it in my life. That time of conviction, whether maybe it was a few hours, maybe you went weeks or even years under the conviction of the law, however long it was for you, praise God for those days when He used those hard, difficult conscience just burning you, searing you, right? You you just feel so uncomfortable and it's such an awful feeling. But God uses that to bring you to the cross. Praise God for the law. Praise God for that. Second implication. In our evangelism, let us remember we must preach law before gospel. We must preach law before gospel. One man has said that the gospel is like a silk thread You cannot get this silk thread into the hearts of men unless it follows behind a sharp needle. The sharp needle is the law which hurts, but what comes after it is glorious and healing and saving, the thread of the gospel. This is why relational evangelism is so important. 
It, it's so hard in our culture to approach a stranger and to begin to tell him how wicked he is, right? Um, it's hard to be able to talk to someone you don't know and begin with the law. Don't you see how, how uh, what a low-down, sorry, despicable person you are? Now, I am too, but you're that. You know, you, you might get hit or something. And so in our culture, it's easier to, to try and form relationships. So we need, we need to be intentional about seeing those that we have an opportunity to witness to and trying to cultivate friendships with them. We should be taking a genuine interest in the lives of the lost around us. We ought to be trying to be extra kind to them, bringing us by God's grace to a point where where we can have the opportunity to say the truth about what the law of God says. And they will be open to it. And they will know that these are the... uh, Well, this hurts but it's coming from a friend who loves me. And so I'm going to be willing to listen. I'm going to be willing to hear it. Let me add one more point here. The Holy Spirit is necessary for this. Um, The law leads us to see our sinfulness. The law leads us to see our need for Jesus only when the Holy Spirit adds His blessing to it. Until that moment, we may hear the law a thousand times, but we will truly be blind to our condition. So in your evangelism, don't just remind people about the Ten Commandments and expect them to immediately grasp and feel deep down how guilty they are and how badly they need Jesus. No, we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to bless our efforts. You ought to pray to God, Father, I want an opportunity to speak to this person, and I want to get them to Christ, but they don't even see their need for Christ. They think everything's fine with them. So, Father, I need to find a way to help them see that that they're sinners, right? And so, Father, I'm going to go with the law. I'm going to talk about the Ten Commandments. I'm going to talk about your wrath. Father, I need your Spirit to work. I need your Spirit to cause their hearts to truly be broken by what I say. Once they have seen how great a sinner they are, then they will be aching and longing for a great Savior. Mount Hermon, the law is good because it brought us to Christ. And there is nothing that compares to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.